Please turn your Bibles now to the book of Judges, chapter 15. You can find this on page 295 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, which is the same translation you have in the pew there. Our congregation has been working through this book. We've just gotten into the 12th and final judge. Samson, as we said, is probably the most famous, but also the most complicated of all the judges. He was called by God to deliver God's people. And we saw last week that his approach to that seemed to be to join with the Philistines instead of to oppose them. And so uh, what we're going to be seeing here as we look at this next chapter is the process of God turning Samson into a judge. And there's a message there for us as we think about how it is God works in our lives to uh, turn us into faithful servants of his. So let's give attention to God's word, Judges chapter 15. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go to my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lahi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, we have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, we have come down to arrest you, that we may, uh, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, no, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, 
With the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramoth Lahi. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lahi, and water came out, and he drank. And his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name in Achkore, which is in Lahi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us and teach us that we might know him better. Well, the sporting world is abuzz because uh, for the first time in 10 years, an American is about to win a Grand Tour bicycle race uh, that's going on in Spain. And it's been famously said that uh, uh, cycling is a matter of which competitor is able to suffer the most. Uh, That's the one who typically wins. And perhaps maybe that's why Americans haven't been uh, doing so well in recent years. We, as a people, uh, do not like to be uncomfortable. We do not like to suffer. And uh, sadly, this is something that we often see in our spiritual lives, that there is a desire to be comfortable. And that desire to be comfortable often prevents us from being the servants of God that he wants us to be. Samson, we see here as a judge, was called to deliver the people of God. And yet his approach was to marry them, to party with them, and to live among them. Uh, He decided he rather liked the Philistines and didn't want to be at war with them. We saw last week how God began to intervene in this situation and to disrupt this chummy relationship that he had going on with the Philistines. And this passage should be an encouragement to you and to me because it shows us that although we are not naturally inclined to be the servants of God that he wants us to be, God does that work of transforming his people and making us into the people that he wants us to be. And that's the main point as we look at this passage this morning. You're not naturally the servant of God that you should be, but you can rejoice that God transforms even reluctant, reluctant servants into the kind of people that he wants you to be. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see how that comes out in the text. Uh, children, if you're going to draw me a picture, you could try to draw a picture of Samson uh, with his jawbone and uh, listen for what uh, this teaches us about God's work in his life. There is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The first thing I want us to notice is that God wants committed servants instead of lovers of the world. We see this in verses 1 to 5. Again, last week we saw that instead of fighting uh, the, the Philistines, Samson loves the Philistines. And in this way, he's a reflection of all the people of God. He's a reflection of Israel. They're content just to live amongst the Philistines with the Philistines ruling over them. And uh, they'd rather just go along than fight. And so what we see is how last week God began to pull back the veil and show Samson what these people were really like that he wanted to, uh, to dwell among. 
and, uh, and this education begins uh, or continues in this chapter. So in verse 1 uh, of our text, we see that he goes down now after some time, after this fiasco of the wedding and the riddle and his wife uh, telling these men the riddle, the, these men uh, u- using Samson's wife against him. Uh, he's cooled down, so he goes to visit her with a young goat. Um, I don't know that it was common for men to bring young goats instead of flowers, uh, but this is a sort of peace offering to uh, go to see uh, his, his wife and to consummate the marriage. That's never happened because of the disruption that occurred. Well, instead of being united with his wife, we see that uh, his father-in-law uh, forbids him from seeing his wife and tells him, in fact, that he gave uh, his wife to another man. Actually, the, 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 it was being translated best man in the chapter we, let, we read uh, last week, the, the attendant who was his companion. So she, uh, she was given away. But the father try, you know, offers to make it right in verse 2. He, uh, he says, look, it's an honest mistake. Take her younger sister. That would have been a common uh, practice in those days. But Samson is not uh, pleased with that. And so we read in verses 3 to 5, his response was just to catch 300 foxes, the, the same word could be translated jackals. I don't know if that makes the job much easier. Uh, this is quite uh, impressive. He, he, he gets all these animals and then he ties them tail to tail and puts uh, some kind of a torch between the tails and lets them go. And it's during the harvest, so there's grain that's uh, standing in the shocks, so there's grain standing in the field, and this fire goes and burns much of the grain. Uh, this, this seems like a bizarre response to us. Uh, what, what is going on? Uh, I need to tell you at this point uh, that the commentators are divided on how to interpret Samson. Um, there are a lot of, especially com- uh, more current commentators who are, I mean, I'm talking about people who are orthodox, who are solid, who see this as just a tale of uh, tit-for-tat, uh, vengeance, unwillingness to forgive, unwillingness to turn the other cheek, that this escalates, and so uh, this is a story about the dangers of uh, seeking vengeance instead of forgiveness. Uh, so that's one way to take it. That's, that's not, I don't think that's the best way to take it, but I put that out there just so you are aware. I think the, the issue we have is that the New Testament tells us very clearly in Hebrews 11, chapter, th- or chapter 11, verse 32, and this is in your outline, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also David, Samuel, and the prophets. There is Samson right amongst the other judges, amongst even King David uh, as being a hero of the faith. So how is it that this man is a hero of the faith? I think we have to understand, I think the key to this is to see that Samson is not a private person acting out his own personal vengeance, that in all of this, he is acting as a public person who has been called to this office by God. And so he is seeking to lead the people of God. And we said last week, in order for this to happen, God has to start to disrupt this too cozy relationship between Israel and the Philistines who are oppressing them, who are pushing idolatry upon them. Uh, Matthew Henry agrees with me this week, so um, I'm I'm claiming Matthew Henry's uh, support. Uh, Here, and the quotation is in the bulletin, 
He says, but Samson looks upon himself as a public person and the affront as done to the whole nation of Israel for probably they put this slight upon him because he was of that nation and pleased themselves with it that they had put such an abuse upon an Israelite and therefore he resolves to do the Philistines a displeasure and does not doubt but that this treatment which he has met with among them would justify him in it. And and so this is why he says in verse 3, I will be blameless, I will be innocent if I harm the Philistines. The idea is this is an international injustice done against the Israelites, a sign of disrespect and abuse. Uh, These men first threatened his wife and co-opted her into uh, sort of working against him. This eventually led to the wife being given to another man. And so uh, he is responding. He's punishing them. And he's acting as God's agent in this. Now, we could debate the appropriateness of the foxes and the fire. All I can say here is that he chose to damage their property. Uh, he, he, at, the, at this juncture, he damaged their property and uh, is trying to respond uh, to their slight Uh, that he's received. I think the point for us is to recognize what we're seeing here is God dealing with this temptation to love the world too much. You cannot faithfully serve God if you love the world. Now let me be clear, loving the world doesn't mean loving nature, right? Loving the creator, that's great. We are to love the world that God made. It doesn't mean uh, that we aren't to love other people. It means loving the world system that's in opposition to God, embracing the world's priorities, the world's uh, path to success, and seeking that as your greatest good. This is why in 1 John 2.15, we are told, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So fundamentally, you cannot make your desire to please the people around you in the world or to succeed according to the world system your highest priority. If you do that, you cannot possibly please God. That's what the scripture says. This is a warning uh, to us. And what we're seeing is how God wants dedicated servants, not lovers of the world, and so he is working in Samson's life. And he, we pray, will be working in our lives as well. Secondly, we're told here that as a servant of God, you must be committed to pursuing his justice and truth. And we see this in verses 6 to 8. So the Philistines do not take their punishment well. They say in verse 6, who has done this? And they answer, Samson, the son-in-law, right? So uh, the son-in-law of the man from Timnah. And uh, so what's their response at the end of verse 6? They go up and burn her and her father with fire. They burn this woman alive uh, with her father. And the author wants you to see that this is barbaric, that this is completely unnecessary, and this is ruthless and brutal. In response to the property damage that uh, Samson has done, They burn these two civilians. And recognize, Samson didn't hold them uh, guilty for the breakup of the marriage. He punished the Philistines, most likely the 30 men who had been at the wedding who had co-opted his wife. 
but they are either too lazy or too afraid of Samson to punish him. He's the one that burned their crops. They go and burn this woman and her father. So this is an outrage. And this is how Samson responds in verse 7. He says, since you would do a thing like this, he's absolutely appalled. He cannot believe that this is their response. Now, we could speculate on what he thought the proper response would be. Maybe they should have uh, disciplined the man that took his wife and given him back his wife. Maybe that's what he was hoping would be the proper response to this. But clearly, he wasn't expecting they were going to come and burn the woman and her father. Again, God is continuing to show him what kind of people he's among and what kind of people he was willing to join himself to. So he says in the second verse, uh, second half of verse 7, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that, I will cease. Again, I think it's wrong to read this as just Samson's personal grievance. This is a great injustice, and he is acting as a public person, as a representative of Israel and of God. In, in a way, he's sort of acting as a kinsman redeemer at this point, uh, seeking justice on behalf of God. And note that he says that he will take vengeance on them and then he will cease. Right? He's still not planning an all-out war against them. He wants to punish them for this brutal killing. Uh, and then he will stop. Uh, and so what happens? It says in verse 8 uh, that he attacks them hip and thigh, which is an idiom that just means uh, with great ferocity. Uh, he attacks them in a, a great melee and seeks justice for the innocent. And probably what's in view here is he had set the fields on fire of those 30 men, and now he's going after the 30 men, those who burned his wife to death. He's punishing the guilty. He's not starting a general war yet. He stops, and then it says he retires to a cave where he's hiding sort of on his own. And uh, we will say more about this in a few minutes when he fights the 1,000 soldiers. But recognize, even after he fights the 1,000, he throws down his weapon when it's done. Uh, so he, he, there, there is a measured, I mean, we don't think of Samson this way, but there is a measured, calculated response at every point along the way. Again, quoting from Matthew Henry, and here he's speaking about the first part, the fire in the fields. He says, God was righteous in it. The corn, the wine, and the oil, which they had prepared for Dagon, that's their false god, to be a meat offering to him, were thus in the season thereof made a burnt offering to God's justice. That is the idea. I'm arguing here that he is pursuing God's justice in these responses. This is God starting to move him into being the judge that he is supposed to be. And this is one of the great challenges we face as believers living in a post-Christian society. Because if we want to stand for God's ideas of truth and justice, we are going to be in conflict with our culture. Um, Carl Truman wrote an article a few weeks ago in First Things, and he said, one of the things that Christians need to wake up and realize is that uh, it is axiomatic in the culture today that every person has the right of self-determination, self-identification. And anyone 
who questions that, whether we all can be anything we want in terms of our gender and everything else, if you question that, you're, you're seen as attacking the humanity of other people. You are, a mon- you are a moral monster who must be stopped. He said, well, Christians don't realize that this is the way the culture views basic biblical ideas on sexuality and a number of other things. And, and because of this, right, it, it's going to be costly to stand for God's concepts of truth and justice and what is right. And we need to not only do this in the culture, but in our families and in our personal lives that we are committed to God's justice. And we see here Samson now concerned with the justice of God. Thirdly, we see here that we must also be willing to undertake difficult things for God's sake. So now we see in verse 9 that the Philistines come into Judah, into this area, uh, with a a thousand soldiers. And um, the response of the men of Judah in verse 10 is, why? Why are you doing this? And they're saying, we've come to get Samson. They're saying, we're righteous, setting women on fire. We're righteous. Samson is the guilty party. You need to help us get Samson. And now they're in a bit of a pickle because what are they going to do? Are they going to work with the Philistines who are oppressing them? Or are they going to work with Samson and risk the ire of the Philistines? Well, we see what happens. Uh, Verse 11, the 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, what have you done to us? What are you, so they're going to side with the Philistines. You are making our lives complicated. We now have an army in here against us because of what you're doing. Uh, We can't have that. Uh, They're willing to continue to be slaves of the Philistines as long as things don't get too uncomfortable for them. And do you see how this is an incredible indictment on the people of Judah? How far have these people fallen in the 250 or so years since the days of Caleb and Othniel, the first judge who was from Judah, where Judah was a leading tribe fighting against the enemies of God. Here, they have the Philistines outnumbered three to one, and they have Samson, but they they aren't willing to fight. They aren't willing to fight. They'd rather give Samson up. Uh, Quoting from commentator Ralph Davis, he says, the tribe that had formerly waded into battle after battle has become a collection of spineless wimps. They regard the Philistines as their rulers and Samson as their enemy. And then Tim Keller, speaking similarly, says, they may bear the name of God's people, but they would rather live at peace with the world and worship their idols than be freed to worship God. And they would rather cut down their own rescuer than risk confrontation with the world. They're not willing to do anything difficult to serve God. Samson, on the other hand, goes willingly. He agrees to let them tie him up and uh, take him uh, to the Philistines. He's willing to do what's difficult in order to serve God. Uh, Colin Elliott shared with the congregation a prayer request last week about friends of theirs who um, had, in a sense, taken a stand on one of these hot-button cultural issues uh, in their neighborhood. 
And the result was that uh, one neighbor was deeply offended, uh, told the other neighbors, and now uh, the whole street is uh, putting out flags and signs all directed animosity toward this one family. Can you imagine being on your block and having everybody else in your neighborhood uh, openly uh, criticizing you and hostile to you? And um, this is the the sad situation. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of the people in the neighborhood were professing Christians who did that, right? Because it's often the religious types, the professing uh, religious types who are the most, the most hostile uh, to true biblical Christianity. That's what Samson's experiencing here. That these people going after him are the people of God, in name anyway, and they would rather turn him over than to fight against their oppressors. Uh, this can be very discouraging for us. We, we find ourselves feeling isolated. We begin to wonder, well, maybe I'm being unreasonable. Everyone around me disagrees with me. Maybe I'm the one that's off base. And uh, I can't tell you how encouraging it is in these situations to have Uh, brothers and sisters in arms uh, to come alongside and to remind us, no, you're not crazy. This is, in fact, what God's word says. And uh, and this is what God sometimes calls us to do, to do difficult things for him. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable at times, to be faithful servants. Jesus told his own disciples in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus is our only source of peace. We can't look for it in the world. In the world, we will have tribulation. So uh, recognize God uh, raising you into a servant may call you to do difficult things for him. Fourthly, we see here that God may even call you to stand and to fight for him alone. We see this in verses 14 to 17. So uh, the Philistines are there at Lahi, and they see uh, the, uh, the, the men of Judah bringing the bound Samson up to him, and they give out a great victory shout. Uh, they think they have won. But then in the second half of uh, verse 14, we're told the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. That would be like, I don't know, children, if you've ever taken fire to like a spider's web or something like that, it just melts, it just disappears. And this is the idea that these bonds are just melting off of him and he's freed and he finds a fresh jawbone in verse 15. The, the original language, the word is actually a moist jawbone. So this is not a brittle uh, thing that's going to break. It's, uh, it's kind of got some uh, moisture in it still, probably still has the teeth in it. And he picks up this jawbone as a sort of a club. And then he starts using it against the thousand Philistine soldiers. And he wins a tremendous battle uh, overcoming these thousand Philistines. Now, friends, do not try this at home. Okay, this is one of those, we read over it, we skip by it. Um, this is not uh, celebrating a man's incredible strength or speed or endurance uh, or his military skill or um, his martial arts training. I mean, I know your mind goes there, right? You're trying to work it all out, how he did this. 
This is again totally supernatural. And it tells us that the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. And he was endowed with a kind of strength and stamina that was not human. That's how this happened. And uh, God put his power on display in amazing ways. One man cannot defeat a thousand armed men. And you may have seen Braveheart. You may have seen all. It, it cannot happen. This is a miracle of God. And so then Samson gives us the final riddle of, uh, of the, his story. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slayed a thousand, slain a thousand men. And we don't quite hear it in the original language because the word for uh, uh, the donkey and the word for the mass, the piles, the heaps, as it is in our translation, is the same word. Uh, so one translator said that to capture more of what this sounds like, it's, it would be if we translated it, the jawbone of, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass, or mass upon mass. And uh, he's, again, speaking about this victory. And again, in verse 17, it tells us after he wins the victory, he throws the jawbone down and the place is called Ramathlehi. That's the hill of the Jawbone. Jawbone Hill is named for this great victory. Uh, again, we might be tempted to see this all as a part of this escalating tit for tat uh, blood feud that Samson is in, but that's not how the author presents it, because the author uses here the exact same language that he used in chapter 14 when Samson overcame the young lion. Right. The, the spirit came upon him mightily and then he was empowered to defeat the thing that was attacking him. And, and the point is that the author is trying to show you that this victory right here against the thousand, that's the victory that was predicted in his conquering of that lion. It's, that's, we said that was a, sort of the foreshadowing of what he could do. And this is in fact the fulfillment of that. He's become this great fighter uh, under God, working uh, to deliver the people of God. And remember, this is what was promised. He will begin to deliver the people of God from the hand of the Philistines. And this is, in fact, what we see him doing here. It's finally happening. Now, we know it's a tremendous blessing that God puts us in, puts us in families and churches where we have support and encouragement. But there may be times where you are at work or you are at school or you are in your, uh, your sports teams or you're in the community where you are going to be sorely tempted to go along with the crowd when God wants his servants to stand and be counted. And that is when it's often most difficult. Here Samson should have had an army to help him. The, 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 Judah, the men of Judah could have just said, Samson, we're with you. Let's take these guys out. But they don't do that. They turn on him and they take him and turn him over to the pagans. And so he has to fight alone. Presumably, the, the men of uh, Judah are standing there watching this all happen while he does it uh, to the end, fearful to risk anything. So he has to fight alone. And he's completely unique among all the judges in this regard. Every one of the judges had an army. Samson is called to fight alone for God. 
And I think this is to encourage us to think about the number of times in the scripture uh, God does it this way. Uh, Noah, uh, building the ark over all these years against a world that's gone crazy. Uh, Elijah, facing the prophets of Baal by himself on the mountain. Jesus, standing before Pontius Pilate, as he does, as our representative. Paul, standing before Caesar. Samson, fighting alone. And yes, someday he may call you to do that as well. He needs servants who will do that. I know I've told you this story before, students, but I had a wonderful example uh, of this when I was early on in my teaching career. And one of the other faculty members down the hall, he came over and he got me and he said, come into my office, I have a student. It's a college student now, I have a student in my office I want you to meet. And so I sat down and he explained to me that in his class of about 200, uh, this other professor had made some statements um, about the Christian doctrine of creation. And he said, then uh, I offered anyone to respond in the class who wanted to, and this one student responded and stood up and gave a Christian response to the, to the, to the teacher in front of the whole class. And uh, he knew I would be uh, impressed with that. He knew I was a Christian. I'm sure the student thought, what, they're double teaming me now, but uh, I came in as an ally. But that's really remarkable. Even a young person is able, and I'm not saying that's what God wants you to do, but I'm, I'm saying at times God calls us to stand up and to just say, no, that's not right. Uh, to stand for him, even if we're on our own, knowing that the Lord is with us. Well, finally, we see here that as God's servant, you must remember that you are completely dependent upon him. We see this in the last couple of verses. So in verse 18, it tells us that Samson became very thirsty. So he cried to the Lord and said, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. And notice there's a lot going on there. But Samson here is acknowledging his complete dependence upon the Lord. He says, you've given this great deliverance by your hand through your servant. He sees that God is the true deliverer. He is merely an instrument in the hand of God. And furthermore, he expresses a fear of falling into the hands of the uncircumcised. The last time we heard that was when his parents said to him, why are you going to marry a Philistine and join with the uncircumcised? So now he understands he's in a religious war. And this is an issue of who is going to follow God. Uh, commentators Kyle and Delich say it this way. From this prayer, we may see that Samson was fully conscious that he was fighting for the cause of the Lord. Uh, that that is, it, that is what's going on here. And God confirms that this is the case in verse 19 because it tells us that God splits the hollow place that is in Lahi. This is, in a sense, the water coming up from the rock. And God then makes this a place of spiritual and physical refreshment for his servant and renews his servant. And this miracle, of course, takes us back to the wilderness wanderings of God's people coming out of Egypt where God opens the rock and, and gives them water and sustains their life. And the point of this is the same God who led the people out of Egypt 
who led the people into the promised land. That's the same God that's at work here in Samson, and he's the one who's sustaining Samson. And so despite all of his weaknesses and his reluctance to be a servant, look at what verse 20 tells us. He judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. God has transformed him into a judge. He is the faithful leader of God's people for 20 years. Sadly, uh, he's going to fall again. We, we, We know that. But the thing to focus on now is the transformation that God has wrought in order to bring him to a place where he's serving God. And, uh, and that should encourage us. Because the sad fact is, I'm sure you, like me, want, I want to be a servant of God. I want to be a faithful servant of the Lord. And yet I recognize that I love the world too much. Uh, I realize I don't care about God's justice and truth like I should. I don't want to undertake difficult things that might get me hurt or be uncomfortable. I don't want to stand alone. And I don't always depend on the Spirit of God like I should. And that's why the only hope for you and for me is not Samson, but the greater Samson, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came willingly into the world, not as a lover of the world, not as one looking for the approval of others, but one who willingly undertook a hard thing for God, the most difficult thing anyone's ever been asked to do. He took it on. He was willing to be uncomfortable. He was willing to face opposition. Even his own disciples told him he had it all wrong. He wasn't going to have to die. Jesus had to then stand and fight alone when it came down to it. He had to face the cross and the wrath of God alone. Everyone deserted him and God turned away from him. That was what our Lord did. And because Jesus did that, people like you and me, who are reluctant to make ourselves uncomfortable uh, to serve him, uh, people like us can be forgiven And we can begin to be used by the Lord as his servants. And with Jesus' help, uh, we can begin to turn away from loving the world. We can begin to turn away from seeking our comfort instead of what God wants us to do. We can begin to pursue uh, his justice in our relationships and in our life. And this is what God did in Samson's life. Now we admit it, it was slow and it was messy. And that might be the case in our lives as well. This process of transformation, it can take time. And it can be messy at times. But thank God this is what he does. Thank God that he's so patient with us. And he continues to work with us. And to make us into the kind of servants that he needs, that he wants for his kingdom. We're reluctant. It's not in our nature to do this. But thank God, because of our Savior, he is transforming you into the servant, the person, the man, the woman, the young person that he wants you to be. Uh, Let's pray and we'll give him thanks for that great work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. This is a, 
a passage that is fun to read in some ways and yet hard to apply. We thank you that what we see here is this difficult process of turning someone who wanted to meld with the world into someone who was willing to fight uh, even alone, even against his own uh, people in order to please you. And we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged as we see how you work. And we thank you that this all points us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly uh, came and took all of these things on as a faithful servant and who did stand alone in our place. And we thank you that because Jesus did that, uh, we have forgiveness and we have every expectation that you will do this work of transformation in our lives, Lord. We confess that we do love the world too much, that we love comfort too much, that we don't want to stand out and face opposition, and that we aren't concerned about your justice, and that we don't trust and rely on your spirit like we should. And Lord, how we thank you that Jesus has done all these things for us perfectly. Help us to trust him. Help us to find our strength in him. And we pray that you would be at work in our lives, helping us to be the servants that you want us to be. And we pray that you would continue your good work among us. And even that we would see that in the, in the coming days as we go into the world this week. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now in response to God's word, we're going to sing from Psalm 119, Selection Q. And so if you turn to Selection Q thinking about this idea of being a servant of God and seeking his priorities. Uh, You see here uh, that uh, the psalmist says, I've judged rightly and with justice. There's this concern uh, for God's justice and what is right. At the uh, the start of the second stanza, I'm your servant. Uh, Give me wisdom. This is our desire that God would use us as wise servants, judging uh, rightly and pursuing his justice. We do this through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing these words together.